Ms. Brent, Exodus chapter 20, as you are finding your way there and as you are helping perhaps your neighbor find their way there, allow the words of the refrain to marinate in your mind. Thank you, O oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. The title of the sermon today is also the title of our August series, Remember the Sabbath. Um, that's a risky title. It's a risky topic uh, for um, our circles. Uh, some of you saw the title and you thought to yourself, Oh, great, I know how these sermons go. Some of you saw the title, maybe you didn't think anything of it. Some of you saw the title and you said, I don't understand the whole notion of remember the Sabbath. After all, since Christ has come as the fulfillment of the Sabbath, what is there to remember? It's become our tradition here at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church. Uh, we have a sort of modified liturgical calendar, if you will. In terms of the liturgical calendar that most of the church has observed for several hundred years, we are in a season called ordinary time. And in, within that season at Chattanooga Valley, we set apart August because in the rhythm of life that we have as a culture, August is when we begin many things. August is when we begin the new school year. Some of us have just entered into high school. Some of us have just entered into junior high. That's where I am. Some of us have just started kindergarten. Some of us are looking forward to starting college. Some of us are starting new jobs. Some of us are taking on new responsibilities in our job. And so there's this sense of, okay, it's time to work. And so at Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, we have begun asking the question, what does the mission of God and Jesus Christ have to do with who we are and what we are doing in this time and in this place? And that's what August is about. It's a sort of a three-step liturgical calendar. At Advent, we celebrate God's great love for His world in the gift of His Son. And then at Easter, we celebrate the, God's great love for His world in the great sacrifice of His Son because of God's great love for His world. By the great cost of His Son's body and blood, He purchased for Himself a special people 
so that those of us who have been crucified with Christ and raised together with him are in fact a new kind of people. So that in August, because of God's great love for his world, we find that he has fully and freely granted to us, to you and to me, the life of his Son by his Spirit. So that we might be changed, and so that we might be trained, and so we might be equipped, and so that we might be sent as a part of his continuing mission. So this August, we will be focusing on remembering the Sabbath. The Sabbath, Lord's Day, and hopefully our understanding of how they are the same and how they are different will um, slowly emerge over the course of the month. But the Sabbath, Lord's Day, is a gift to us. It is a gift of God's wisdom. It is a gift of God's love to us by which we get to practice kingdom life today. By which we get to practice the rhythms for a flourishing life in God's world. And so display the hope and the wonder of Christ's coming kingdom. That's what the Sabbath, Lord's Day, is. I hope we will begin to see that in remembering and honoring and celebrating this Sabbath Lord's Day, it's that it's central to living well. It's central to living as a human being. And it is certainly central to living faithfully to our new identity and mission in Christ as his disciples, as his ambassadors of his peace in his world. And so to get at that in our first of these four series, I want to, us to look at Exodus chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, and we will read the first 21 verses. It's a very well-known passage, but just to set the context, you remember that Israel has only recently been rescued from Egypt. They have observed themselves and in some cases actually felt the power of God's love in the ten plagues. Most dramatically, perhaps, the great rescue by which he brought them across on dry land through the Red Sea. And now they find themselves gathered at the foot of the Sinai in the wilderness, and to a man, to a woman, to a child, they're just trying to get clarity. What just happened? Because it is without precedent. There's no way, there are no words to describe what just happened. And never mind what just happened, how did it happen? And never mind what and how, but who did it? And, and why? Our passage, there's one, there's one way to understand our passage. You can understand it as God's short answer 
to those questions. But as we all know, it's an answer the dimensions of which we will spend eternity exploring. And so this is 21 verses in summary of that great answer. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God. On it you shall not do Any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother. And that your days may be long in the land that the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, is giving to you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us, we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word to us, a gift of his great love. Thanks be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. So, Father, we do come. We do thank you for this, your word, that by your spirit has been inspired And by your spirit has been preserved through the ages that now we behold it, now we read it in our own language. Father, because you want to be heard, you want to be known, you want to be loved. And so, Father, by the powerful working of your spirit, we pray that you would strengthen us to hear you speak. Protect us from error. 
Feast us upon the wonder of your love for us through your Son, Jesus, that we may indeed be a people for the display of your glory in one another's lives and the life of the world around us. We pray it in Jesus. Amen. So I had a uh, long acting career. It lasted about four months in sixth grade. I was a bookworm. And uh, that was actually pretty good because I was so nervous in front of people that I was as stiff as a bookmark. And then I waddled out onto stage and I quiveringly delivered my one and a half lines because I forgot the last half. And then I waddled back off stage and that was my day in the spotlight. You remember school plays? Some of them in elementary school, some of them middle school perhaps, some of them in high school. Or perhaps you're a musician, you remember school orchestras, you remember all that? Remember how these things go? The school play or the school orchestra, there is a day set in the distant future when you will in fact perform publicly all that you've been practicing. And so you start from day one. This is a clarinet. This is a trumpet. This is a stage, whatever it is. And so we begin with the very small parts and we begin to practice them. Four score and seven years ago. We begin to memorize our lines. We begin to memorize our parts. And whoever the director is or whoever the, the, um, whoever the director is will gather us together on particular days. And sometimes on a given day, the director will say, okay, I just want this portion. Okay, I just want all the little mice today. Or I just want the violins. And so they'll come, everyone else gets off. And then another portion and another portion. And eventually we begin to see glimpses and glimmers of our little parts. And as the year progresses, we begin to get a little bit more excited because the day is coming. Perhaps we get a little bit nervous because I'm not learning my lines. And then the director begins to put all of these other parts together until about a month before we begin to have dress rehearsals. They're exciting times, these dress rehearsals, because they tell us that the time is coming and it's close. And in dress rehearsals, we get to bring all of the disparate parts together. The stagehands have been building the stage while we've been practicing our lines. And now we're all there together. And they're making final adjustments to the set. The director is interrupting the flow to correct this or to correct that. We begin to get a picture of our part in this whole endeavor. And we begin to get excited. And we begin to get giddy. Dress rehearsals. 
We get to practice and adjust staging. We get to practice and adjust seating and movement. We get to practice tuning our instruments one to the other. We try on the costumes. We try the music. And we work through it all beginning to end. That pattern holds for all kinds of very complex and important things. We have dress rehearsals, for example, for operas, not just high school and college, but even beyond. We have dress rehearsals for plays and for symphonies because of all of the parts. But we also have dress rehearsals, don't we, for sports. We call them scrimmages. We're learning the basic skills in a given sport, and then there's a day where the coach wants us to practice it all together in the context of a practice competition. Or, more seriously, we have dress rehearsals for war. When a complex strategic battle is coming, it is very common for generals to actually have their guys practice the battle or practice the invasion. Pop quiz, raise your hand if you've ever heard of Operation Tiger. Operation Tiger took place in April of 1944. It was the practice for D-Day. You know how serious it was? Almost 800 men lost their lives in practice for D-Day. Just because it's a dress rehearsal doesn't mean it's not real and doesn't mean it's not serious. Dress rehearsals are an important part of everything from operas to war. The Sabbath, Lord's Day, is a sort of dress rehearsal for life under the rule of Christ's peace in his coming kingdom. As complex as the production of a symphony is, it pales in comparison to the, to the production of an entirely new kind of people in an entirely new kind of world. An entirely new kind of people who live and love together in increasing harmony and increasing rhythm together with the glorious love and life of the triune God of all creation. The Bible language for God's vision for such a people in such a world is treasured possession, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's a vast and sweeping vision. It's a complex production. And it takes work and orchestration and practice. As is often the case, it's helpful to have one-page summaries of such projects. 
consider it an executive summary, if you will, or an architectural drawing that helps us to imagine what the end is. And the Ten Commandments provide us such a summary of such a life. A one-page sketch of his great dream, of his great plan for what flourishing life of a new humanity looks like under the reign of God's grace. It looks holy. It looks distinctive. It looks different. It looks unnatural. And it takes practice. Having been redeemed, he says, this is the flourishing life I have designed for you and for all people. Contrary to the lies of pharaohs, contrary to the lies of the Canaanite gods, this is what the flourishing life looks like. And the Sabbath Lord's Day is a, is, a, is a gift of our Father's love and wisdom for which we get to practice together that life today. We get to practice the great joy and the great hope which is ours in Jesus Christ so that the world can see a living trailer of coming attractions. Life under the rule of Christ's peace. How great will that be? In other words, central to living faithfully to our new identity and mission in Jesus Christ as his disciples in this world is remembering and honoring and celebrating the Sabbath Lord's Day. It is a generous gift of our Father's grace as a part of our inheritance to sustain us, to shape us, to guide us as we await with eager longing the full redemption of our bodies and our world. But we need to understand that our remembering, honoring, and celebrating the Sabbath is also God's gift to the world. The world groans in eager longing for peace, for joy. Give me something to live for. If God is God, why doesn't He answer me? Brothers and sisters, we are that answer. Do you understand? That as we are gathered together, we embody what life looks like as the King of Peace is creating it. He has acted. He has heard. He is making all things new. It invites them to imagine that maybe our God is living. Maybe our God is loving, maybe our God is reigning, so that as we remember and honor the Sabbath, the Lord is cultivating in us, equipping us and training us for life in his kingdom, which is central to a flourishing life under the rule of Christ's peace. And the habits of that 
involves ceasing and resting and celebrating and participating. And those will be the things we explore in the coming weeks. Resting, ceasing and resting and celebrating and participating in the peace of God, which is ours in Jesus Christ. Today, I want you to notice two things. One that we've been saying. Our remembering and honoring and celebrating the Sabbath is central to living faithfully as God's new people in Jesus Christ. You'll notice as we look at the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath command in our text comes in verse 8, Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Those of you, some of you are, are aware that in Deuteronomy, the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and the Sabbath command begins in verse 12, in which we are told to observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In both cases, it's, the bo- it's both the same sets of commands. It's both, it's the, in both places, it's the same summary of God's life, of the life of God's people. There's a difference in the Sabbath command, and we'll get to that in a moment. But both of them appear in the same place. They appear in the center. Now, it's important to note that because that's what reminds us that it is central to flourish to, the, to God's design for a flourishing life in this world. And it's important to note what it's in the middle of. The first three commands speak to our love of God. The remaining commands speak to our love of neighbor. The Sabbath comes, as if you will, as the capstone of this summary. If you think of the, three, the first three commands as one side of an arch and the last set of commands as the other side of an arch, the Sabbath is the sort of capstone that kind of holds it all together. It holds it all in place. Our love of God is made manifest in our love of neighbor. Our love of neighbor is a function of our love of God. But it's also the sort of, a sort of hinge upon which those work. In our own um, background, in our own tradition, we love to think linearly. We love to think in lists. And one of the things that we love to do is remember the summary of the law that Jesus told us. The greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we say, well, I'm going to concentrate on loving God. And I'll get to loving my neighbor when I've mastered that. Or some in our circles say, you know what, I'm going to worry about loving my neighbor. And when I've gotten that down, I'll worry about loving God. In terms of history and in society, that's largely the difference between conservative fundamentalists and liberals. If you sever one from the other, then you no longer have either. Because they fit together. What the Lord has brought together, let no man tear asunder, is a principle that applies here too. 
And so the Sabbath is, is a way that we grow in our love for God, but also grow in our love for one another, for neighbors, strangers, sojourners, and even enemies. But another image you may bear in mind is that it's an intersection. It's the intersection where the mighty acts of God's love for us meet the mighty acts of God's love for our neighbor. That is perhaps a stranger or a sojourner, the least, the lost, the lonely, perhaps even those you presume to be your enemies. Notice how the, te- how the text starts. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. <sighs> um, sorry. You cannot yawn in the face of that prelude. Because packed into that little preface there, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, is something that hitherto has been unimaginable. Because Egypt was the world superpower. And that meant that Egypt's gods were the cosmic superpowers. And Israel was not even Israel. They were a slave people, a no people. They had no power, they had no standing, they had no resources. And that meant that their God was powerless. And now, we have him saying, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who did this. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I'm the one who defeated the gods of the pharaohs. I'm the one who commanded the Red Sea and brought you through. I did that. That was me. The statement itself is simply unbelievable. Mind-boggling. We could spend, and indeed we are spending, all of eternity, today, even beyond the return of Jesus Christ, marveling at the wonder of verse 2. My God? My God? My God? I can't even get through the pile of diapers. My God? Yes. My God. It's enough to silence you. It's enough to make you say, well, if he can do that, Maybe he can take care of this. If he can defeat the gods of Pharaoh, 
if he can defeat the gods of the Assyrians, if he can defeat the gods of the Canaanites, if he can actually call and use Cyrus to accomplish his bidding, maybe he can move in the HR department. Maybe he can give me the proceeds from the sale of some of his cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe he's able. That is what is in view whenever throughout Scripture you read about the mighty acts of God's steadfast love. You want to know that God loves you? Remember his mighty acts. You want to know that God has the ability to care for you? Remember his mighty acts. Not just those which are recorded here, certainly not less than this. But allow the record of these mighty acts to help you recognize his mighty acts in your circumstance. Because by that mighty act, he has done another mighty act because of his great love for the world around us. He has risen you and I from the dead. For God so loved the world that he sent his son to create a people that the world might know. And so... The Sabbath is a sort of capstone, a hinge, an intersection right at the center of the flourishing human life that puts on full display the full reign of our living and loving God in the peace of Jesus Christ. It's central. And I want us to look briefly at the first, the primary movement There are four, if you will, habits, four, um, yeah, habits that are cultivated in remembering and honoring and celebrating the Sabbath. You can cut this and slice this a number of ways, and the way that I have tried to do it here as we come to actually revisit this notion of the gift of God's grace in the Sabbath and Lord's Day is this. It involves our habits of ceasing, of resting, of celebrating, and participating. We'll be looking at ceasing today, but I want you to notice this, that all of them are positive habits. As we'll see today, ceasing is a positive command. In verse 8, it begins, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do your labor, do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your servant, your female servant, your livestock or your sojourner. And here's the rationale. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them rested on the seventh day. And for those of you who are interested That is the difference. That's where we find the difference in the Deuteronomy version of the the Sabbath command. 
we hear this. All of these people, you and all of this, all your household shall rest. You shall cease from your labors. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. And so the call to cease on the Sabbath is a call to honor the finished work of God himself. The finished work of creation and the finished work of recreation, of redemption. That's the root of it. So that in, our, in the Sabbath, we are reminded that our God reigns. And we are not just reminded, it, reminded of it, but we actually, we actually take it to the bank by ceasing. You see, ceasing is a positive thing. That is to say, it takes energy. It takes Work to cease. God is the great worker. All of our work, from waking to sleeping, all of our work, every breath that we take, every note that we write, every project that we complete, every deadline that we meet, all of it is just a subset of his work that continues unabated even today. Our cultural mandate is a function of his cultivating work. His creating work. Our great commission is but a part of his great mission. And we must understand that. Because if he can cease in order to celebrate the wonders of his good work, ought we not to? Not only so, we can. We have been freed from the insatiable appetites of Pharaoh's productivity culture in order to celebrate the work of God. If you have your Bibles open, you can flip back just a couple chapters and let us join the Israelites on the edge of the Red Sea. They've seen the plagues. Israel has, Moses has led them out, and now they've come to the Red Sea. The Red Sea in front of them, the fast-approaching army of Pharaoh behind them. They can run neither to the right nor to the left, and they certainly can't go back. It's over. Verse 14.
excuse me, chapter 14, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have brought us all this way to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone and let us serve our taskmasters in comfort and convenience. For it would have been better for us to serve them than to die here in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, listen to this. Because Paul, I was just realizing this in Sunday school this morning as I was listening to Scott. Paul echoes this command. Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you. That language of stand firm is the language of plant your feet. It's a military term. It's stand your ground. You've seen the the war movies where the enemy is coming. And the brave commander stands out and says, Hold! 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 Stand firm. That's the language there. It's the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand firm. Stand at your post. And watch. This is the language of ceasing. Stop. Cease. Stand still and resist your impulse to run. Resist your impulse to do more and to do it faster. Stop and stand still. And indeed, the rationale becomes even more explicit when we hear Jesus Christ declaring from the cross, it is finished. Now bear with me for just a moment. Because in our circles, when we hear the declaration of Jesus from the cross, our conclusion is, therefore, I don't have to. Because Jesus did it, I don't have to. But brothers and sisters, that presumes that there was ever a time when we were able to. But we were dead. We were never able to, never mind, have to. The good news of the gospel is not that because Jesus did it, we don't have to do anything. The good news of the gospel is not because Jesus did it, we can throw it in neutral and just coast on our way. The good news of the gospel, brothers and sisters, is that because Jesus did it, we are actually made the humanity that we've been created to be. Because Jesus did it, we now have life. Because Jesus did it, we get to. Because Jesus did it, we get to join him at the feast and celebrate his mighty works. Not just his mighty works from eternity past but his mighty works from the weak past. 
Brothers and sisters, do you understand that we are here today because of his mighty works? That's what we get to celebrate as we cease from our own frantic, fretful, and fearful endeavors. We get to say to one another, God's doing this. The one who called is faithful. He will do it. So let's cease from our labors and celebrate his labors. And so we get to cease. We get to cease our hard work. Commenting on this passage, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes this in his book, Sabbath as Resistance. He says this, The fourth commandment on the Sabbath is the most difficult and most urgent of the commandments in our society because it summons us to intent and conduct that defies the most elemental requirements of a commodity-propelled society that specializes in control and entertainment, bread and circuses, along with anxiety and violence. We get to cease and stand still and resist the insatiable, currents of our culture, which is why Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel writes that anyone who wants to participate in the Sabbath practices of the flourishing human life for which we are designed, anyone who wants to participate in the holiness of the Sabbath must first lay down the profanity of clattering commerce of being yoked to toil. He must go away from the screech of dissonant days, from the nervousness and fury of acquisitiveness and the betrayal and embezzling one's own life. He must say farewell to the manual work and learn to understand that the world has already been created and will survive without his help. It'll take me a lifetime to internalize that last statement. Really? The world will survive without my help? But if I don't do it, it won't get done. If I don't do it now, all hope will be lost. Cease. Stand still. The Sabbath is a day where we get to practice ceasing. Ceasing from our frantic and fretful activity. Ceasing from speaking. Some of you are familiar with this mysterious word that appears in the Psalms. Selah. One of our members is actually named for that mysterious word. Selah. Because by that practice of selah, we actually learn to rest, to be still, to be silent. It's a mysterious word, but most people believe that it is related to the Hebrew notion of peace, the language of shalom. Jerusalem is the city of peace, right? And so selah, we believe, means be still, a musical term that we believe means be still, 
rest, be silent. And so in the face of God's mighty works, we actually learn to cease from blaming. On the Sabbath, we don't, we're free from that. We don't, we don't have to. We don't have to blame one another. We don't have to make sure that the world knows that I am not at fault, but that person is. We can cease from that. We can actually cease from accusing. We can cease from suspecting. We can cease from explaining ourselves and seeking to justify ourselves. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again because it's apropos. Have you ever tried to say, I'm sorry, and not follow it with an explanation? Go ahead, just try it today. It's a Sabbath, it's a good day to practice ceasing. Try, try offering an apology and not following it by an explanation. Even theoretically, it's a terrifying prospect. In our culture, we've actually been taught to say, sorry I'm late, traffic was heavy. Sorry I'm late, my alarm clock didn't go off. Next time you're late, try just saying, sorry I'm late. And notice the fear that wells up within you as you watch the other person begin to formulate all kinds of reasons, legitimate and illegitimate, for why you might be late. No, no, it wasn't that. No, it wasn't that. It was perfectly understandable. And then try the discipline with something more serious. Sorry I said those hurtful words. I was tired. But we can cease from thought and feeling. We can cease from our fear. We can cease from our fretfulness. We can cease from our anxiety because God's work is done. He is the living and loving God of steadfast love. And so we can cease from our own fears. We can cease from our own anxieties. We can cease from our own fretfulness. The practices of Sabbath, Lord's Day, in the practices of Sabbath, Lord's Day, we begin to see are a specially designed gift of our Father's love in Jesus by which we get to practice together and put on display for our community the rhythms of a flourishing human life, life as it will be in the coming kingdom, a flourishing life together in Christ of ceasing together, of resting, celebrating, participating. And this is a matter of pressing an urgent practical importance for us. For it is a matter of our growing to more fully partake together in our inheritance in Christ, as well as to model to a desperate world the wonder, the beauty, and the joy of living together under the rule of Christ's peace, which is ours by the cross. Let's go to him in prayer.